It's good to see you. I'm, this isn't the way I sound. This is my sick voice. I brought it with me today. Um, I'm sorry for that. I am going to do the best I can today. I, I got the same thing everybody else has been getting, I think. Um, but if you brought a Bible or a device with you, go to Acts 19. Acts 19. It is cool how deep it is, though. We didn't put any bass in there. That's the way it is right now. Makes me want to lift something heavy. My wife can't keep her hands off me when my voice is like this. I'm just... Acts 19. Titus 3 is also a really big passage for us today. Titus 3. It's going to be a strong word. It's going to show us who Jesus is so much more clearly, um, which is going to show us who we are much more clearly, I believe. While you're turning there, how much time do you spend in your closets? It's a weird question, isn't it? Your closet. Not a lot, right? The place where you keep your plastic Santa Claus... The clothes that don't fit unless you're 10 pounds heavier, the clothes that don't fit unless you're 10 pounds lighter, the shoes that aren't in style but you swear it's coming back, right? The gym equipment that you bought late at night on TV, you swore it was a good idea. The boogie boards you had whenever you were in middle school, guitar, you don't even play guitar anymore, you still have it, you don't want to get rid of it. That's what closets look like. Closets are cluttered. That's why we don't spend a lot of time in them. It's where we take the stuff from our house that we don't want people to see and we cram it in there. It's just full of different kinds of things. And I don't know if you've ever been in a really nice house, like a magazine-looking house. My mom, my mom has always um, done a really good job of making houses look like they just popped right out of a magazine. But if you ever looked in one of her closets, you just, oh... I mean, there's all kinds of darkness and depravity inside these closets. There's all kinds of weird stuff just crammed in there. The reason the rest of the house looks so good is because every odd and end is crammed inside of that closet. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically right now, okay? So indulge me a little bit because I do think we have closets in our lives, internal closets, the stuff we don't want anyone else to see, the stuff that we don't really like but we're not really ready to get rid of. Our private lives, our private thoughts, just our private world. I've been fascinated, really crushed is probably a better descriptive term, over what's been going on with the Ashley Madison, um, just ordeal, I guess is the best way to call it. Over 35 million accounts have been opened with Ashley Madison. It's just a website where the tagline is, life is short, have an affair. Chris um, Harris did a little bit of research and found out that over 24,000 of them are here in the Knoxville metro area. 24,000 people that you will see this afternoon, that you will be out driving around. They're crossing their fingers and they're hoping that their wife or their husband doesn't look to see if they themselves have an account there. It's one of the first times in our nation where we've seen the, the, the dark closets kind of flung open for all to see. Where what was private, not so private anymore. The things that your friends didn't even know about you. Maybe even your spouse is becoming very open for everyone to see. And before we're very tempted to say, not me, I've never been to that website. Or I'd never even do anything like that. That's crazy. This isn't really something that I would struggle with. Let me remind you, if you've ever even thought about it or dreamed about it, then your, your closet is just as dirty. If you've ever just considered for a moment what infidelity might be like, enjoyed that thought, any impure thought, and friend, you just like me, our closets are dirty, they're cluttered. What does it take to clean it? 
clean it of all the stuff that we hate, but don't hate enough to just get rid of. What does it take to really clean a closet? I think today's passage is going to help us a little bit as we see Jesus show us how the people in the young church were cleaning their closets by the power of his Holy Spirit. Very cool text for us today. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Okay, Ephesus, it'd be good to introduce this city just a bit to give you an understanding of the atmosphere there. Ephesus is a lot like Athens in the fact that its heyday had already come. It was on the decline. Um, It had a port that a lot of ships used, but it started to silt up. Ships couldn't get out and in anymore, so their commercial um, enterprises started to dry up or move out. But it was always known for its religious influence in the world. Ephesus was. This is where the temple of Artemis was. Artemis was a goddess of fertility. And I did the research and actually just drew out the measurements and found out that this temple, four times bigger than the Parthenon, it's actually larger than Neyland Stadium. 137 pillars, each one a gift from a king. It was massive. It was massive. And the idol inside, the idol of Artemis, wasn't even a very beautiful one. It was this short, squatty statue with many breasts to signify high fertility. And and this is an interesting note. In all the research I did, every single scholar and historian, all of them said, no one knows where it came from, no one knows how long it's been there, and no one knows what it's made of. It just showed up one day, which is a bit creepy to me. All these historians are saying the same thing was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is the greatest glory of the city that Paul is walking into, is that it was home to the largest pagan temple in the known world. That's what its hallmark was. So let's look on. Verse 2, he found these disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is having a conversation with these folks, these 12 men. And I guess he realizes mid-conversation at some point that they're not Christians. See, they, they were probably using Christian words or were caught up in Christian activities, but they themselves were not Christians. And so he changes his conversation a little bit. Alistair Begg calls them almost Christians. It's going to be a helpful term for us today, almost Christians, because if you do not have the Holy Spirit alive in you, you are not a Christian. This is what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone. I think the first step, just looking at this, just stepping out a little bit, I think the first step in cleaning our dark, nasty closets is just being a Christian. It's being a, having the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in a little bit, and you are not a Christian, you have no hope of cleaning that closet of yours. No hope. No hope at all. So what do they say? Well, we, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit They're speaking a little bit in hyperbole, which is just an exaggerated statement. Of course, they had heard of the Holy Spirit because they were fans of John. They followed after John and John's baptism, right? John was always talking about what? The Holy Spirit. 
In fact, you rarely find John talking about what his baptism is without mentioning the one he's pointing to regarding the Holy Spirit. So essentially, they just didn't know that the Lord God had given the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus yet. That wasn't relevant information to them. Now it's relevant. He says, well, then what baptism did you receive? They said, John's baptism, which is a good baptism. It's just not a sufficient one. You see, John's baptism showed everyone that you were turning away from your sin. Get in the river, dunk in the river, step out of the river, and it's a show before all people watching, God and the angels, that you were turning away from your sin. But how can you do that without the Holy Spirit? You see, John's baptism, as good as it was, it cannot help us clean our closets. There is a better baptism One that we have access to today, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because no matter how many times these guys got wet in John's baptism, they could have been baptized 28 times. It wouldn't have helped them clean their closets anymore. They'd still be powerless to put sin down. Now, when I'm talking to people that are far from Christ, whether I'm at the gym or the bar or wherever, and I talk about how impossible it is for them to put their sin down, I always get resistance on this point. Always. But Luke... I've been able to put down some sins. And I know other people who don't even love Jesus and they can put down sins. It's not true. If you were to put down one specific sin, six or seven more will pop up in its way. Go ahead and give up addiction to alcohol and watch how addicted you can get to Netflix. I've known people, I've, I've preached this openly, I've known people who were addicted to cocaine or meth or marijuana and then they give up that addiction and then they become addicted to exercise and racing and training and things like that. It's just, you, 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 it's like whack-a-mole. You hit one and, and three or four more will pop up in its place. And that is what it's like without the Holy Spirit. Trying to put down your sin with your very own might. You see, I think a lot of people are just like these 12 men. I think they're representative. Awakened to their own sin. Awakened to the reality of their flaws. Awakened to the, the reality that they need a help to come out of it but they're almost Christians. Not real Christians, just almost Christians. They see their sin, but no Holy Spirit to effect change in their life. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, and all you do whenever you go to church, or you go to a calm group, or you go somewhere um, where the Bible is being preached, it's gonna be easy to see all the things that you do wrong. But without the Holy Spirit, what we do is we just roll up our sleeves, and we say, well, then I need to get to work. I got a lot of cleaning to do i got a lot of things I've got to start attending. I need to get myself in a Bible in the Year program. I need to start showing up to calm group. I need to lead a calm group. I need to jump on. And we start doing all these things. And when it really is, is it's us trying to deal with the bad news we've been given. It's like if someone were to come to your house. You've got water spraying everywhere. This has happened to me numerous times. Water spraying all over the kitchen, right? And you realize there's a, a busted pipe. It would be like having a neighbor come over that knows a little bit about a little bit and says, hey, listen, you've got a problem. You've got a major pipe busted, and it's a problem, and it's going to be expensive. Well, that's bad news. That's pretty bad news, right? You're out there shutting the water off. You're trying to assess the damage, and then what are you doing? You're rolling up your sleeves to get to work. Now, it's only good news if that same person comes in and says, hey, listen, you've got a problem. You've got a busted pipe, and it's going to be expensive, but I know a guy. Now, that's good news. This person knows a guy who's going to fix it for me. You see, for the almost Christians, and I was one for over a decade, 
For the almost Christians, when you roll up your sleeves without the aiding and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to change, and all you have left is to roll up your sleeves and get to work, you have two outcomes. One is pride and one is condemnation before God. Pride says, I gave up this sin. I put down this sin. I was able to change these poor habits. I was able to improve my performance here. I'm able to behave better over here. And then we start looking down our nose to others who can't. We start kind of sticking our chest out as we walk around God's earth. But on the bad days, you have condemnation, do you not? Man, I can't fix this. I've rolled up my sleeves. I've clocked in every day. I can't get this changed. I keep thinking the same things. I keep doing the same things. I can see a little bit of a conversation. Could you imagine being among those 12 guys, listening to Paul talk about this Holy Spirit and wondering, huh, well, that changes a couple things. That makes a little bit of sense out of some things that I've been struggling with. I've been struggling with these sins. John told me to get baptized and turn away from him, and I did. I believed the message, but I've not been able to really change anything. I've not been able to see any, any kind of conviction get deep. I mean, I'm just still wrestling and struggling with the same stuff. This makes sense. There's no Holy Spirit in me. Again, I think this is representative for many. I think many in this room right now. Might this not explain why some of you can't change? You've tried and you've tried. You're not able to do it. Not only can you not change, you don't care that you can't change. No burgeoning passion, no solidifying convictions. You're just the same old, confused, frustrated. All right? You're an almost Christian, and your closet is nasty, and it has gotten so bad that it's beyond your cleaning abilities. Right? But there's good news, because I know a guy. Right? Let's look at Titus 3. I love this passage. Titus 3, 4, it's a great one to read when you're discouraged, and it's such a good encapsulation of what the gospel is, that if you ever just want to look in the Bible and find the gospel, the good news for you and me, Titus 3 is a fantastic place to go. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of the own pipes that we, we fix, not because of all of the rolling up of the sleeves that we do, but, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, richly. Listen, I mean, just for a second, why would he do anything richly towards us? extravagantly towards us. Why would he do anything like that? I mean, we've been nothing but liabilities, spiteful liabilities, rebels and scoundrels. And here he is. He's doing something beautiful, and he's doing it richly for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I love this. God is good. And when God's goodness shows up and his kindness shows up, and his mercy shows up. It says right here, he saves us. Let's look at verse 6. I'm going to show you how this plays into this passage a little bit. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
There were about 12 men in all. Okay, don't freak out. It's not that big of a deal. This is going to be a little bit like Pentecost in Jerusalem. Like Pentecost in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Ephesus were very similar in where there were a lot of languages there. They were polyglot cities where the east kind of meets the west. And you could walk down the street and hear seven or eight different languages being spoken. So here you have, interestingly enough, 12 men, right? You have 12 men becoming radical Christians and they're speaking in different languages. History will go on to show that for centuries, not decades, but centuries after this, Ephesus becomes the major missional outpost in all of Asia and most of the known world, replacing both Jerusalem and Antioch. Interesting. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That's just a rental hall. Tyrannus is short for the tyrant. So they're paying rent from a to a guy whose nickname is the tyrant, so I'm sure they got a really good deal on that place. This continued for two years. Later on, you'll find out he was in this city for three years total. Two years he was in this rental space. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs, that means sweat cloths, all right? You wipe your head, you're sweaty. That's a sweat cloth. Or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Let me remind you, again, the atmosphere in this city is electric with witchcraft and pagan religions and seances and incantations and exorcists and all kinds of magical imposters. So when God starts to flex, we see it this flexing in a little bit of a supernatural way. This is actually the church that Paul writes later on to about what? Spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. Same church. Now, let me just say, just before we move on, not a major point, but that God used Paul's sweat cloths and work aprons and things like that, it is unusual. But it's, it's not without some sort of a precedent. Jesus did the same thing, did he not? Walking, someone grabs his cloak, they become healed. So we see a little bit of a, little bit of a, a precedent. But the, the fact that you can you know, go to TBN and for $19.99 buy you a sweat cloth and have it probably delivered overnight. I went on Amazon, you can find them, you can get them on eBay. I found a dude that's selling green ones, if you want a green one. You could actually buy sweat cloths that are healing cloths. And this is the passage that they anchor it on. The fact that that stuff happens... Don't let that trick you into thinking that God did not do something like that in the past. It happened. It's here. Now, we don't see Paul endorsing this. We don't see him recommending this. But God was happy to heal people in miraculous ways through that. You're going to have to do with that whatever you want. I'll just say that God does condescend to meet us in our ignorance and our weirdness He doesn't just abandon us or avoid us because we're weirdos and superstitious sometimes. I mean, if he did that with Christians, if he avoided Christians who were superstitious a little bit, we'd be in a jam, wouldn't we? I mean, I was downtown a week ago, and I went up in a really tall building, and I realized there was no 13th floor. 
I hadn't seen that since I was a kid. I mean, come on now, really? We all know there's 13 floors there. They just didn't put it in the elevator. It's weird. Or the fact that a black cat crosses your path, or you have a, ra- a rabbit foot, or you cross your fingers sometimes. God does condescend to meet us in our weirdness. He's really good. He's really sweet to us in all of this. Let's look at verse 13. I've got to move on. 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Those are three words in the Bible that you will never see like that ever again. Three, itinerant means traveling or gypsy or nomadic, right? So you have some gypsy Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So ancient exorcists was what's going on right here. To them, names were super important, right? In fact, the more powerful of, of the name, it gave them more power, they figured. So they would, they're always shopping for real powerful names. And this, this is actually happening 20 years after Jesus had come and gone. This is 20 years later, right? It just moves by so fast, we don't really put the math together. But it's in his name that some crazy, miraculous things are happening. So what do they do? They just borrow his name. It's just what they were all about. And it's interesting what happens. You know, it's interesting that we still do this. I was thinking about an episode of a show I watched. Gosh, it's been years and years. I know Ghost Hunters is an old show, and there's like 38 spinoffs now. But back when that show was original, I would stay up late at night and watch that show. Paula never did with me. She thought it was stupid. But I love to see these clowns just scare themselves, right? Because they get all these fancy cameras and these, this gear, and they put it all over the place. And then they wait till it's dark. And they get out there, and they freak each other out, you know? They see, like, a little speck fly in front of the camera, and they think it's some orb of someone that died 300 years ago, and they get real excited about it, you know? And I thought, this is so funny. These guys crack me up. It was, it was entertainment for me to watch that. But one night, I kid you not... I'm sitting there watching it, and they're sleeping overnight in this room where allegedly someone had died, right? So it's very scientific of them to sleep overnight there, I'm sure. And they're, they're hanging out, and as they're talking, and they're trying to invite and then provoke whatever ir- evil spirit. It's been years. I can't remember. All I remember is that door opening right at this very key time. This... And I, I, when, when I heard that, I sat up in my chair. I thought, whoa, that's pretty timely that that happened, you know. And as soon as that happened, one of the investigators, I kid you not, he flipped around and he said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to stop. A guy that doesn't even believe in Jesus. A guy that doesn't even see Jesus as part of his reality. He got so freaked out. He got so scared that he grabbed for the biggest name he could find. Probably the one he heard in church camp from 20 years earlier or wherever, and he just threw that out there. We still do this. Let's look at verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So they're, now they're the seven streakers of Siva. Get it? How many clothes on? Siva was not a Jewish high priest. We have no historical records that there was ever a Jewish high priest named Siva. He was a self-appointed one, one of the innumerable pagan cults. He just, again, borrowing status and borrowing names. And this beating was so bad 
I mean, if, if you've ever been in a fight, I got into fights in high school, in college, in middle school, and in the real, real bad fights, you'd have like a couple buttons popped off on your shirt, hair gel's all off now from headlocks and stuff, and you're like, where's my shoe, where's my shoe? Might miss a shoe. These guys were beat so bad, they don't have any clothes on, and they're bruised and, and battered, and they're running. I mean, it is an incredible beating. Let's read on. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came. Okay, now these are believers. Don't miss the language. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, this is what I've been wanting to get to all morning. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Book burning meant back then what it means today. It's a repudiation of what's in the book. It's a hatred of what those books stand for and what they say, right? And we know that silver is pretty much widely agreed in the scholarly world that the silver coin was a drachma. So a drachma was worth about a day's wages for the person there. So I ran the math according to our current American standards. Today, they burn books to the tune of about $8.7 million. That's how much. So I did some phone calls. And I, I made some research out of this. And I realized that that is just over. That's more than the entire inventory in a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Imagine every book pulled out of a Barnes & Noble's and thrown in a big heap and set on fire. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but those books are cheap. So of course there's a lot of books. Some of those books are four or five bucks. These books are expensive. Yeah, but textbooks are expensive, aren't they? Textbooks are expensive, aren't they? So if you took every single textbook at the East Tennessee State University campus, all of the students and all of the bookstores, and you put them in a pile, that's how much it is. It's about $8.7 million. That's a big bonfire. I did some more research, and I used the Texas A&M bonfire. If you're not from Texas, you might not be familiar with this, but every year, Texas A&M, they construct this massive bonfire. It could be seen for over 35 miles, right? And it pales in comparison to the size description of what this would possibly be. You would see this from a 777 flying overhead. You would see it from the bottom part of the inner atmosphere. That's how big this fire is. It teaches me something. See, we don't just turn from our sin. We do it extravagantly. Jesus' people turn from their sin extravagantly, overwhelmingly, wholesale. We're blunt when it comes to repentance. You know, extravagance, it just means lack of restraint in spending money, lack of restraint in using resources. This is what William Barclay says. He says, it is all too true that too many of us hate our sins but cannot leave them. Even when we do seek to leave them there is the lingering and backward look. There are times in life, he says, when only the clean and final break will suffice. This is the trouble we have, isn't it? when it comes to sin and our dirty closets. This is the struggle we have. Rather than destroy the enemies of our soul, we do what ancient Israel does, and we cohabitate with them. We share our houses with them. We give them anything that they want. 
When we do cut sin out of our life, we just cut the convenient ones out. We're always careful with the scalpel to cut around the sensitive area so it doesn't hurt too bad, right? This is who we are as people. But what I see in this bonfire, it teaches me how to handle sin. I'm to burn it all. No turning back. Burn it all with no turning back. I'm learning from these people. But to be honest, we already knew this from our king. He's an extravagant giver, is he not? He is extravagant. You see, we're extravagant sinners, sinning beyond the resource that we have. We richly sin. And our rich, extravagant sin has an exorbitant price attached to it. This is bad news for us. Now, because we are extravagant sinners, God is yet an extravagant spender. And he gives above his resources, he even comes to give himself. This is what I love. Let's look back at that Titus passage. This is such a great passage. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he what? Poured out on us richly, deeply, extravagantly. We're extravagant sinners, but he's an extravagant spender. I don't think we need to keep our dark closets stocked and stacked with all of our secret sins and private worlds and private behavior and private everything. We don't need to do that because Jesus is better. Jesus is simply better than anything that is in our closets right now. A a popular article that always comes up, you know, at least once every two or three months in these sermons is something that Thomas Chalmers wrote back in the 1700s called The Power of an Expulsive Affection. You can find that online. I challenge you to read it. Just Google it. It's free. The Power of an Expulsive Affection. And he talks about how we are unable as people to get rid of our sins just by putting them down. What we need is a deeper love. He says this, tell someone to stop sinning, and at best they may do so reluctantly, and at best they might do so partially. But give them a vision of knowing God and his glory, and they will gladly root out all that gets in the way of their relationship with God. I'd say probably over a year ago, I I talked about this concept using a sumo wrestler as, as a, a metaphor, as a picture for us. The only way to really get a sumo wrestler out of a ring, can we agree, is not just to work really hard at it. You can work, and if you catch him when he's tired, you might be able to knock him off balance a little bit. But friend, you're not going to get him out of that ring. He's not coming out of that ring. This is how you get a sumo wrestler out of the ring. You go and get a bigger sumo wrestler. An expulsive power. Our sin is the same way. Our sin works the exact same way. How do you get that stuff out of your dark closets? Do you roll up your sleeves? Do you work really hard? Or do you grant yourself an expulsive affection by falling more and more and more in love with Jesus? Friend, the reason that you still have sin in your life, it's not because you're not a hard worker. It's because you're not a hard lover. You don't love Jesus. You don't have that affection that you're nurturing from day to day that is so strong that you can't imagine anything getting in the way. You can't imagine it. 
Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I know that I believe this if I've burned my dark sins at a place where it's cost me. That's how I know I believe it. You know, these people are burning books. Those books weren't just books. They held the secrets and the hopes and the desires of those people. Right before they were throwing those books on the fire, you know what those books were saying to them? I mean, not like talking, but you know what I'm saying, saying to them? I'm better than Jesus. If you do this, your life will take a downward spiral. I'm better than Jesus. You can't do this. But they burned them. They burned them. No going back. I also know I believe this if I burn my dark sins in public. I'm going to be careful here. But listen, this was public. They didn't have 98 different bonfires and they're all little backyards. They had one giant bonfire. Everyone can see which Christians were coming out of their house with magic books and incantation books and hucking them on the fire. Everybody could see it. Who is helping you? Who is involved in you burning some of those secret sins? Is anyone connected to you? Anyone walking with you through these things? This is how we do it. This is how Jesus' people stop sinning. Part of it is we just have people involved in the process. I know this is scaring some of you. But who's closely associated with you that is aware of what's going on in your life? You know, and here's a couple cautions with this when it comes to talking to people about the darkness in your closet. There's just a couple. Be careful if you're married. Friend, listen, if you're married, husband or wife, and you've got a, a, a sin, a sexual sin in your closet, you need to address that with your spouse before you tell someone else. Don't just go telling somebody else. That's not helpful. It's not helpful, A, but B, it might bring shame to your spouse. Sometimes when a man commits a sexual sin or a woman commits a sexual sin and it's confessed and it comes out, sometimes the opposite end of, of that marriage, the other, the other party, they feel a little bit of a shame. Don't do that without talking to them about that. It is important that you get people involved in your life, but be careful. Also be careful with the kind of detail you go into. Again, especially when it comes to sexual sin, be very careful. Galatians, it says that we as Christians are to be gentle when we handle people in their repentance, and we have to be careful that we don't fall into the temptation of that same sin. And this is important whenever it comes to especially sexual sins. I've heard of cases where a guy will fall into sexual sin by doing nothing more than being enticed by listening to another brother confess about a similar sin. They don't need all your details. Help them understand that you need to burn this publicly. You need to go with no turning back. But don't be so weird about the details that you're causing a stumbling block for the person you're talking to. These are just a couple quick, couple quick application points. Be careful. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this. I don't, it's been a great text, and I love this text. Verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. For some of you today, and they're going to come up and they're going to start musical worship, and, and Chris is going to come and introduce what this time means to us as a church. But I would say this needs to be a bonfire day for many of you. It needs to be a bonfire day where you're throwing those things that are claiming to be better than Jesus on a fire. And yes, it's going to cost you. And yes, you're going to have second thoughts. 
But if you put yourself in a place where there is no going back, you'll grow. The Holy Spirit will begin to change you. Some of you in this room, as I'm looking at this, I realize you might be like these 12 men. You might be almost Christians, as Alistair Begg says. Almost Christians. Maybe you were dunked at a church camp. Maybe you've been a Christian since you were two. But you've never really been totally convinced. And you've always slightly wondered, am I really a Christian? Because some things aren't making any sense to me. I'm supposed to be putting this sin down, and I can't do anything but just pick more of it up. I don't feel anything changing me. I'm not seeing any growth. In fact, I don't have any desire to grow. I don't have any concern or care in the world. My conviction's not getting deeper. I could give a rip what anyone says. Sermons come and sermons go, and it doesn't really matter. Friend, I've got to tell you, you might have gotten wet when you were a little kid, but you definitely don't have the Holy Spirit in you. Not a Christian. You're an almost Christian. You've got work to do today. Because until you get this expulsive affection, your closet will always be dirty. That's for all of us. Listen, when you love Jesus and you can't shut up or wipe the smile off your face over what he has done for you, people will come with their sins. You'll be tempted to do certain things, but you won't be real tempted because you were so in love with Jesus, and that is pressing everything. It's just moving like a sumo wrestler, flushing everything else out. That's how you put down sin. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your graciousness. When your goodness and when your kindness and when your mercy arrived, Father, you saved me. You saved us. You washed us richly, you said, with your Holy Spirit. And the only thing I ever did richly was sin against you. You're such an extravagant Jesus, giving us an extravagant spirit to change us extravagantly. And the only thing I've done that's over the top is lob stones at you and declare war. That is how good you are, God. Father, that my heart would be reminded of that from day to day to day. That, that my, my affections for you would be nurtured and grow and expand and fill all the crevices of, of our hearts, God. That no sin, no sin is hard to throw on the fire. God, you clean our closets. We never could. And because of your generosity to us, when you see us, our closets are clean as your children. You, you see us as if we have no darkness because of what your son has done. God, all, all, all we could do is say thank you. All we can do is worship you, fall before you, and say, oh my God, how amazing you are. Lord, help us do work and business with you today. Let today be a day where we heap things on a fire that could be seen for miles and miles in the public where it cost. Help us, Father, just walk up to someone with the courageousness and a boldness to say, hey, I've, I've got some things I'm struggling with. I, I need you to help me with. Help us, Father. Some of us in here, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. 
And like those 12 men, we're wondering right now, right now, if, if there's even a Holy Spirit in us. Not because we're not growing fast, but because we're not growing at all. So Lord, beyond what our great-grandparents told us and our old youth pastor, Lord, we look into your word. You tell us in Romans, without your Holy Spirit, we have no part with you. Lord, help us do work today as well. We love you, Jesus. You're so good to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.